All right. Well, the wrong question. Number three. Have you enjoyed this series so far? I've really enjoyed this series so far. Looking at Bible stories that I, I know so well, but looking at them through the lens of the wrong question has just been so much fun. Today we are going to John chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and get there a while. Depending on how long you have been around here at Freedom Valley, you may have heard us say the phrase, I'm in. Right? Have you heard us say, I'm in? We use it as this sort of way to self-evaluate, to indicate to us, to indicate to yourselves that I am into following Jesus. It may be a new decision, a repeated decision, but you are now in to being a disciple, choosing to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, accept his forgiveness in your life, and use your life to serve him. Sometimes I think that... As Christians, we assume that if we just did everything right, if, if we did everything right as a church, as a believer, that people would just come to Jesus, right? Like, like if we did everything correct, if we, if we never hurt anyone's feelings, which in this day and age, how? Uh, if, if we get the temperature right in the sanctuary, if, if the worship volume is at just the right level, if we make sure the kids have the right amount of teaching versus games back in kids' ministry, if, if we held the doors open instead of making people open doors, by the, like if we got every detail correct, the billboard said the right thing and all of that, if we got all of that right, people would just come to Jesus, that it's just a matter of tweaking things and finding the right set of things, right? Don't get me wrong, there's always a ton the church can improve upon, always. At all times, we can improve upon so many things. But here's the thing. Jesus was a perfect person, a perfect leader, a perfect servant of God, and people still left him. He was a perfect person. He never had a moral failure. He was a perfect teacher, perfect in every way, and people still left. What I want us to see today is that not, is not what everyone else is doing. And maybe you have someone in your life who's walked away from Jesus, and you want to find that perfect thing to like throw in their face and bring them back. Let me just stop you. This, this is not that sermon, okay? What I want you to see today is that you are the one who has walked away. All right, maybe not today, maybe not lately, but at some point, you probably have, and at some point, you probably will. Maybe if we can recognize some of the signs and symptoms beforehand, we can avoid that, okay? This particular group of people <clears throat> we're going to read about today, they followed Jesus around because they got addicted to one particular aspect of his ministry, not him, himself. They got addicted to one piece of his ministry, and they began to ask the wrong questions of God, the God, God incarnate, Jesus in front of them. They, they began to ask him, demand of him all the wrong questions, and it landed them in a situation where they either had to say, I'm in or I'm out. And in this particular instance, the vast majority said, I'm out. Now, John 6 takes place 
And at time of Jesus's ministry, when he became very popular, very fast, by all accounts, that should be a good thing, right? That sounds like a good thing. Jesus getting very popular, very fast. That's what we all hope for, don't we? That we would see revival and and standing room only in churches and, and just very popular, very fast. But it wasn't the crowds and the people that Jesus had a problem with. He had a problem with the way that he became popular so quickly. The way that he became popular so quickly. So watch this. We're going to read together John 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as they healed, as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And when God asks a question, I ask this a lot. When he asks the question, does he need to know the answer? So, <laughs> probably testing him, right? Verse 6, he was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. I think it's odd that Jesus would ask this. I thought about this for a long time, but I think I came to the conclusion that Jesus wanted the disciples to see. He was drawing their attention to something here. He wanted them to see that there was no physical way to get this job done. There was a crowd of people following him, 5,000 men alone, plus all the women and children along with them. Uh, no way to feed that many people. Like, even today, can you imagine feeding a stadium full of people with no notice? How are you going to... Nobody can do that without any notice, right? And back then, certainly, there was no, like, roadside market stand they could go to to buy the food they needed to feed all of these people. They hadn't packed lunches. They didn't plan to be there. They just kept following Jesus. And so... He had led the people to an impossible situation with only a supernatural solution. Does that sound like any other places throughout the Bible? <laughs> like a lot of places throughout the Bible. Jesus had led the people to an impossible situation with only a supernatural solution. And he wanted his disciples especially to see this for what it was. And so he's drawing his attention, their attention to this. Super interesting that when God asks us a question... He then answers it in ways we never expect. I think God does this to me a lot, actually. He, he like leads me to ask a question. Even if it's the wrong question, he gets me asking questions, right? So that he can give me the right answer and teach me a life lesson. This, we did a series called Wonder a few Christmases ago that still sticks with me because it's like God wants me to wonder, he plants that within me, the doubts, the, the fears, the things that make me question God. Those are good things, really, as long as I go to the right source for the answers, as long as I keep pushing that through to get the answer. A lot of us get lazy in our questions and let the doubt take over, but we have to get that answer from God because he wants us to have it. It's a life lesson meant to stick with us. Verse 7, Philip replies, remember, he's looking at this physically, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. This is so many people. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. 
this answer. I can't wrap my head around this either. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. How preposterous does this answer sound? Now, I don't know if <laughs> Andrew was had a thought in his mind, like maybe Jesus can do something with this, but I would feel so dumb bringing this to Jesus. Five loaves and two fish. That'll feed like three disciples, max. <laughs> what? But what good is that with this huge crowd? But the thing is, even with that wrong question, and this is not the wrong question of the day, but it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a question. It's kind of wrong. I would just feel so dumb asking it. But Jesus has the answer. Okay, verse 10. Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. This miracle, it seems so natural. This is one of those miracles. There's not like any big bang, boom, like smoke, cloud, whatever. It's like he just keeps giving out food, and it just keeps coming, keeps coming, and keeps coming. <laughs> distributes them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. When God gives out food, when he provides for you, does he give too little? Does he give too much? Is it just the right amount? Listen to this, though. This is one of my favorite details in the whole Bible. Wait for it. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. That detail, why are there leftovers? <laughs> Does Jesus provide too little? Does he provide too much? So why are there left? Jesus should never have leftovers, right? He's perfect. He knew. So they picked up the pieces and filled how many baskets? How many disciples were there? I love this so much. He sent the disciples home with doggy bags, y'all. He knew exactly how much leftovers they would have. And he sent them with lunch for later. I don't know about you, but leftovers are like my favorite thing. <laughs> no? Nobody else? Anybody like leftovers? You like the doggy bag at the end of the restaurant? Jesus does too. That's all I'm saying. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. I love that. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Can you force God to do something? Look, Jesus had an assignment, and that assignment was not to be king. Not in this sense, anyway. Right? Jesus is not a parlor trick king. He does not feed and heal everyone all of the time in every instance. He would have to have been to stay in place as a king like that. He would have to constantly be doing those magic tricks to keep all the people happy all the time. He didn't come to make all the people happy all the time. Remember, what the Jews of that time wanted more than anything was a leader that could help them overthrow the Romans. Right, they had been in basically slavery, servitude to this uh, 
they saw them as just heathen swine, right? This foreign nation that came over and overtook them. They wanted to be done. They wanted to overthrow the Romans. They wanted to govern themselves with God at the head. They, God wasn't at the head anymore, right? Religion was. Lots of bad things had taken over in the Jewish nation, but that's what they, they wanted. They wanted a guy who could come in, overthrow the Romans, make all their dreams come true, who, who could feed everyone, heal everyone at will. I mean, can you imagine a, a military leader who can always feed their army and always heal the wounded? This is what's going through their head. Victory, right? They're seeing dollar signs and victory at every turn. They'd have an unstoppable army with a leader like that. That's all they could see. Right after this passage, Jesus, we're going to skip a little bit here because it's a lot to read, but he walks out to the disciples on water. Do you remember this story? Right after he feeds the 5,000, he sends everybody away. He sends the disciples across the sea, and he goes up on the hill to pray by himself. In the middle of the night, there's a storm that rises up. He walks out on water to the disciples, basically is hunted down the next day and stalked by this crowd who are just bewildered that he could be there, but they didn't know where else to go. They, they followed, the disciples are going across the sea. We'll meet them over there, okay? So this, this crowd follows Jesus. We're going to skip the walking on water part and pick up in verse 25. The crowd finds him on the other side of the lake, and they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> I love that they're bewildered that he's there. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Does Jesus mince words? He goes right for it. (laughs) There is no like, welcome, brethren, come and sit with, no, he's like, I tell you the truth, you only want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood what I'm trying to do here. Right, But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me his seal of approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? These are not innocent questions. You can see them reveal more and more of their heart behind these questions as we go through this conversation. They're sort of grasping at power here. It's not what they're asking that Jesus has a problem with, but how they're asking it. The attitude with which they want to perform miracles too. They want to feed people too. They want to heal the sick too, right? They want that power that they see him have. They don't want him. There's a difference. It's how they're asking it. Verse 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They're not believing in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They're, they want his power. Can you see this? And of course, they don't like this answer because it doesn't give them any power. But believe in you? We know your parents, dude. You're from Nazareth. We want the power that you have, not you and your message. Because they answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? I mean, what powers can you do? Jump, monkey, jump, right? It, it's passive-aggressive manipulation. They want Jesus to keep doing things for them. Show us a miraculous sign. You, you were there yesterday, right? I fed the 5,000 yesterday, right? You've seen the sign. Now your job is to believe. 
After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, it's, it's manipulation. They're quoting scripture at him to get him to do what they want. Listen, just because you know the scriptures doesn't mean you know the heart of Jesus. There are a lot of people out there that know the scriptures, but they don't say it with the heart of Jesus. It's manipulation. This is the wrong question right here. What can you do? Meaning, what can you do for us, right? I almost, in the sermon title, I almost wrote it as a demand, not a question, because it feels like a demand, not a question. Perform for us. Do a miracle for us, right? What can you do? Prove it if you're so good. They didn't believe at all. This is not faith speaking. This is not faith that compelled them to follow him across the sea. They wanted the power. Seems like a demand. Show us. Do it for us. Serve us. Feed us. Give to us. Do a miracle for us to believe. Jesus said in another passage, it's a wicked generation that demands a sign. And none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Meaning he will die and be raised again three days later. There are a lot of Jesus' signs. Don't come immediately. To suspend your disbelief for a minute. You have to place your faith in him. And then he responds, right? It's a wicked generation that demands a sign. Jesus said, 32, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's trying to get them to see that their eyes are on the miracles and not the miracle maker. Their eyes are on the provision, the food, the physical, and not the provider. Now, they don't need food today. They had that yesterday. They need him. The miracles are a means to an end. They're there to get us to believe in him. They've already been shown one. They won't be shown another. Not today. He's asking for their belief. Jesus replies, and he's still trying to get them to see, I am the bread of life. I'm oh, sorry, did I skip a verse? Verse 34. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. <sighs> give us that bread every day. They're just not seeing it. Can you feel this a little? Have you ever tried to help somebody out, say on the street maybe, or you know, you give somebody a $5 bill at a, a, a red light or whatever, and then they ask you for more? Anybody? Come on, tell the truth. It doesn't feel great, does it? You're giving what you have decided to give already, and then you're pushed on that. You're asked for more. This is kind of what this feels like now. If Jesus fed you yesterday. Give us that bread every day. It sounds good, and it sounds religious. It, it sounds like... Like you're leaning on Jesus for your every need. <laughs> but hasn't God empowered us to fulfill our own needs too? I just, there's, still, there's this starving mindset. This is what I've, I've come to call it. That you see pop up within churches sometimes. It's this me, me, me mindset. It's, it's I need more. 
I need to be fed. I need to be to be in service every day. I can't go serve kids once a month. That's too much. You're asking too much. I need to be fed all the time. And not only that, like, the thing is, Jesus gave us the word. God gave us his word to be fed by. What I'm doing on Sunday mornings is I'm taking in the word and sort of mama birding it back to you. It's kind of a grotesque way to say it, but I'm regurgitating it back to you. I've gone to gather it, right? And I'm now giving it back to you in a way that you can understand it. Yes? You have the word. I assume you all have one and probably lots of them gathering dust on your shelves, right? You have the word in your homes or you can, I will give you a Bible today if you don't have one. Go home and read it. It is the bread of life. You don't just get to have access to it once. There are Christians around the world, by the way, who do only have access to it on Sunday morning. Right? Pastor Jerry and my dad a couple of weeks ago told us about a church. I forget what country he was in now. But they had one Bible for the whole church. You probably have one Bible per person in your household, including pets and babies. We are so privileged as Americans, like as American Christians, we have, I have so many Bible resources at my fingertips on my laptop. I don't even need a physical Bible anymore, really. It's on my phone. I have BibleGateway.com, UVersion.com, BlueLetterBible.com. I mean, I have so many resources. There is no reason you're not feeding yourself every day. There's no reason. This bread that I'm giving you today isn't meant to last the whole week. Can you imagine if you ate today, the hot dogs we're going to serve after service, if you ate that today and not again until next Sunday? You're not meant to have the word once a day. But there's this starving mindset. Some Christians come into church starving. They need it because they haven't fed themselves all week. (sighs) I'm just so starving and I need someone here to feed me. Someone else feed me. And this is, infants do this, guys. Babies cry when they need food, right? As adults, we should have learned to feed ourselves by now. It's not other people's job anymore, right? Right? This is what Jesus is trying to get them to see. I'm not going to be here to, to feed you bread every single day, guys. It's not what we're talking about here. Jesus replies, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. He's starting to get a little offensive here. On purpose. (laughs) When Jesus does something, it's on purpose. First, he keeps claiming to be God, which if you don't believe he's God, downright blasphemy, right? But more importantly, he's not making any more bread. I mean, come on, Jesus, we're hungry here, right? Do your magic trick. Verse 37, he goes on. However, those the Father have given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. This is why he could not be king. And we like to say around here, not all bad things are bad things, right? Comes from a Johannes quote, personal coaching that he gave me. Not all bad things are bad things. But also, not all good things are God things. Not all good things are God things. Would it have been good for Jesus to be king? I'm sure, because he's perfect and the perfect leader, and right? But it wasn't a God thing. God had 
so much bigger good plan in mind. Not all good things are God things. Verse 39, and this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. He's talking about us, y'all. 2,000 years later, could they see us 2,000 years in the future? Heck no. But that's who he had his eye on. Even then, he was saying, I can't be king for you now in this generation because I got to be king for all the generations so I can raise them all up at the last day. I don't want to lose even one. Verse 41, then the people began to murmur. They're murmurers. They murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? The guy from Nazareth, right? He lives right down the street. We, we know where he grew up. How can he come from heaven? Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up, as as it is written in the scriptures. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Verse 47, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am that bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. See how he's offensive a little bit. To, to say that to the Jews about their ancestors would, <laughs> would have raised some hackles. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. I'm trying to give you more than that. Can you feel this? He's trying to help them see it. They just can't understand. Where am I at? Verse 50. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I offer to the world is my flesh. He seems a little repetitive here. He is because I think he's just trying to get them to see this. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. It is a little hard to understand. Right When you're seeing this through purely physical eyes, not understanding that Jesus died and resurrected yet, right? I get it. I get the confusion a little. But instead of pulling back and explaining himself, Jesus says again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, he takes it even further, (laughs) you cannot have eternal life within you. So it's getting real, real now. Like this sermon is unraveling just a little bit. Listen, these teachings of Jesus have no value if you take them at face value. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Even if his body stayed in the ground, there is no way we could literally eat his flesh and drink his blood, even if we wanted to, right? He was trying to take them from a physical mindset to a spiritual one. He was trying to get them to see that he was, wasn't speaking in the here and now, the physical, right? 54, but anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And we're going to skip down to verse 60 because it does get repetitive here. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Like anyone, not just that, like we've been with you so far, Jesus, but how can anyone accept this? These aren't, this isn't the 12 he's talking about. He's got lots of disciples around him at this point. Followers, people who want to learn from a rabbi, Okay. Very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that they were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? 
does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The fact that you're gonna, you think you're going to eat food from me every day, you don't know what's coming, guys. I am leaving in a short time. I won't be here for the rest of your lives. If you rely on me for your every single meal, like me physically standing here in front of you, you're not getting it. I'm trying to prepare you for something else, right? How will you feel when you see the Son of Man ascend into heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you still don't believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, this, that is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, verse 66, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, this is, <laughs> if you take nothing else away from today, memorize this verse. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? Who? To whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. To whom would we go, Jesus? You have the words that give eternal life. He did not say bread. He said words. He didn't say miracles. He said words. Simon got it. He understood what Jesus was trying to say here. Not miracles, not bread, not fishes, right? The words. You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. In other words, we trust you even when you're not feeding us. We trust you even when you're not healing us. We trust you even when you don't seem to be with us, like out in that storm you sent us into last night. We trust you. Then Jesus said, I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. He was feeling real spunky this day. I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later betray him. This passage, I absolutely love that they included this passage. Do you know this is one of the only, I don't know how many are actually included in all four Gospels. This is one of the only stories that is in all four. It's that important, I think. I think that this was a monumental moment for the 12. The fact that people left and Jesus is almost okay. He almost caused them to leave. I mean, <laughs> he could have said some nice assuaging things. He could have massaged them into more followership. I mean, he didn't. He chose to say these things very specifically. He spoke to not the people, but their starving mindset. He said very specific things to them. I think in a lot of ways, we've been learning these lessons over the past few years as Christians in America. We are, are meant to be moving out of that starving mindset. In 2020, for example, this wave of revelations hit me where I saw Christians not being fed everything for once. There was nobody greeting you at the door every Sunday morning saying hi and welcome and this like manufactured sense of community 
There wasn't any of that. We didn't have kids' ministry available. You had to teach your kids about Jesus, right? We didn't have this, like, all-together worship moment where you felt something. You had to worship on a screen at home with probably crying kids in the background and dogs barking, and you didn't have it all handed to you for once. And those of us who made it through 2020, man, (laughs) we made it. (laughs) But we had to grow out of that starving mindset a little bit. We've had it good here in America. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's, there's struggles and troubles and persecution and all that. But we've been able to be coddled a little bit. We, we, some of us have grown into these spoiled, rotten brats who want everything handed to us. Jesus is trying to get us to mature out of that mindset of a, a crying infant that needs to be fed by other people and into a mature faith. One that can follow him and disagree and be offended, but still try to figure out what he means and make it change our mindset rather than change him to us. Jesus wants us to grow into our, grow in our faith, grow in maturity so that we can be useful. That's the purpose behind all of this. You don't just have to grow up to grow up. Growing up sucks, right? Nobody likes it. But we grow up for a purpose so that we can be useful to others, so that we can raise children and be useful to them, right? Same in our faith. These disciples, they're asking the wrong question. What they're essentially asking is, what can you do for me? What can you do, Jesus? Perform miracles for us. Do more for us. And instead of Jesus, the, the 12 didn't look at Jesus with that mindset. I said, whatever you're going to do, we trust you. Who else would we go? To whom else would we go? We trust you. Not the miracles, not the bread and the fish. We trust you. Whatever you're going to do, Jesus, we're here for it. Or we just want to learn. You have the words that give eternal life. There's some things that I want you to notice here, and we're going to do some comparisons of these two attitudes today briefly. The, The crowd versus the twelve. The attitude is completely different. The crowd is in it for the crowd. The crowd is in it for themselves. The 12, they're just down for whatever Jesus does. They're they're not asking questions so much as following where Jesus leads. Right? I'm not trying to discourage question asking here at all. Because I think we should ask questions of God. It's the heart with which you ask, though. Right, the attitude you're asking with that we're talking about today. And there are some things that we can pick out of this that will help us ask better questions. Some things about Jesus and our relationship with him that if you know going in, if I can teach you these things today, you will ask better questions of God in your relationship with him. So number one, Jesus doesn't always make it easy. It doesn't always make it easy. I think a lot of us think it should be easy. We get up in the morning and we pray, God, give me a good day today, an easy day today. Protect me, guide me, show me what to do. I'm just going to follow you around like a little puppy dog. Jesus doesn't always make it that easy. If it's not spiritually helpful to feed you, he's not going to feed you. If it's spiritually helpful to feed you, he will feed you, right? He did so on, it's not like he doesn't ever feed anyone. If it's spiritually helpful to do so, he will. But when it's not, he will not. 
think that's a tough pill for a lot of Christians to swallow. But we want God to make things easy. It should be easy. But we have to remember that Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he did not do himself. Jesus, his life was tough. By all accounts, if any of us had to endure all of the things that Jesus endured in just three years, I I don't know if we'd make it. I wouldn't make it to the cross. But uh, I think I'd be done right then and there. I'd say something to get out of it. I, 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 I would hope that I could, but <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, Jesus, he gives us these glimpses into how he made it. The fact that he went up away from people after he fed the 5,000. He went into the wilderness to pray. He even separated himself from the disciples. There is meaning in that. He chose to withdraw himself for a small time to focus on his father and the mission. I think he had to recenter himself in the mission before he went back down and said all those mean things. (laughs) He fasted in the wilderness for 40 days before he started any. I mean, he was baptized, right? The Holy Spirit filled him, and he went out into the wilderness immediately for 40 days, fasted, prayed, prepared himself for what was to come. This crowd didn't want any of that. The fasting, the disciplining yourself to go up on the, the mountain instead of sleeping all night, right? Getting the, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I bet God said, lay down and rest for a little while because I've been there. <laughs> God has said that to me before. There's a, a specific time that always comes to mind. Aaron had just been diagnosed with end-stage renal failure in the Gettysburg Hospital a few years ago now, and... I remember just being so overwhelmed and I'm sleeping on this hospital room floor and I'm, he's already sleeping because they had given him something <laughs> to sleep. He was knocked out. And I was laying down on the floor, just tears, exhaustion. And I, I remember thinking, God, I know I should be, I should be like marching around the room right now, praying in tongues, anointing everything. I should be this like prayer warrior right now, right? Anointing everything and claiming promises, and I was like, I'm just tired. <laughs> God, I, I don't think I can do it. I don't have it in me. Does that mean I'm, I'm a failure? Like, I'm having this conversation. Literally, I was on a, a paper-thin mattress on the floor. <laughs> and I remember God whispering to me, you know what? You rest. Rest. There are so many people praying and doing that right now. You rest. I think that's probably, Jesus had all these moments where he withdrew to God. And I imagine in his sleep, in his rest, God spoke the words he needed to say. And he said, lay down, sleep. Right, there's this passage with the the prophet Elijah, right, where he is done. They're hunting him again. He said everything he needed to say to the Israelites over and over and over. And they're just not listening. And now... King and queen are after him. They want to kill him. And remember, he runs away. He sits under a broom tree or something. And what does Jesus do? What does God do? Gives him a snack and a nap. Literally. Tells him, go to sleep for a while, Elijah. He brings him food. <laughs> lets him eat. He sleeps again. He wakes up feeling like a different person. <laughs> right? There are times that, that is what it means when there is rest in him. 
It's not always push, 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 pray, 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 anoint stuff and be that prayer. Sometimes God just says, you know what? Rest, I got this. That's what Jesus is, is trying to teach these guys. It's not about like the to-dos and the to-don'ts. All the, like, it's about a relationship with him because sometimes it's time to fast and sometimes it's time to work. Sometimes it's time to feed the 5,000 and sometimes you reprimand them right? It's not up to you. You don't get to choose what season you're in, unfortunately, or I would choose the good one all the time, right? I think we would all choose the one where we're feeding people all the time because it feels good and people love us. Sometimes it's time to tell them the truth, pull them up a little bit. Sometimes it's time to withdraw and be away from them for a while (laughs) get that. Jesus was being fed by the heavenly father, in that wilderness. There are are points in his ministry that he tells the disciples, the disciples come back with lunch for him. Do you remember the story of the Samaritan woman by the well? They come back with lunch for him and Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. (laughs) They're like, did somebody feed him? Like, what, what are you talking about? He wasn't talking about food. He had a moment with his heavenly father and that was all he needed. The crowd isn't interested in those moments. They're not interested in, the, in the, what they see as fake bread. <laughs> they don't want the heavenly bread. They want the real stuff. They want their bellies to be full. They want to be comfortable. The cult of comfort, I call it. This crowd was more interested in getting the blessings than getting to know the blesser. When it's spiritually edifying for things to be a little difficult, God will make it so. Look, we skipped the part about the storm and the sea, but I encourage you to go back and read it. In John, there is this crazy story sandwiched in between the ones that we read today. Jesus walking on water and all of that. Do you remember this? The storms came up and the disciples are on the boat. That area was known for its storms at night. Jesus knew and he sent them into it. Anybody else get a little salty about that? Like, you knew there would be a storm, and you still, you couldn't have said camp out here on the nice beach for the night, and then go, like, first light, head up. No, he said, get in the boat, and go, he knew there would be a storm, and he sent them into it, and then he walks out on water, like, nothing's, nothing's wrong. I think Jesus was teaching them a thing or two here, testing them a little bit. All right, and I think when he asked Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was trying to get Philip to, to begin to see things in a more spiritual way than a more physical way. To see the harvest, the provision that was right there in front of him. That he was with the provider himself. Sometimes those moments teach us more than anything in a book will teach us. The lessons learned the hard way stick with us the longest, don't they? His religious burden is easy. His yoke is light, but his teaching is not always easy to accept or understand. Sometimes you have to live it a bit because he speaks in what seems like riddles, but it's truth that you have to wonder about, to think about. You have to study and research because it will be spiritually beneficial for you to do so. 
So he gives it to us in riddles on purpose. So we wonder about it. So we start asking questions about it. So we have to dig. He stirs up this hunger within us to find out what he means by that. That wonder series that I always talk about. There's a reason that Jesus seems to sometimes hide the truth. He wants you to mine for it. Dig for it. How many of you can believe a conspiracy theory right off the street? Somebody runs up to you in the Gettysburg Square and just spits a conspiracy theory at you. Are you going to be like, yeah, mm mm-hmm, cool, and walk away, not believing a word of it, right? Most of us don't respond to, like, sidewalk evangelists for the same reason. We have to seek it out for ourselves. And unfortunately, for a lot of us, it takes a crisis for that to happen in our lives. It takes a question, a big one, a struggle to get to the point where we will believe the truth. If you live a conspiracy theory, you believe it, right? It happened to you. (laughs) But convincing other people is not as easy. The truth isn't always easy to find, but when found out, it will stick with you. When confronted with a challenging truth, these people decided to completely reject it rather than change their minds. Now, he, Jesus didn't come to feed our physical bellies all the time. He came to feed our spiritual souls. We are first and foremost eternal spiritual beings, by the way. Right? He, he, that's the part he came to feed, to fulfill. The, we only temporarily fit into these physical bodies. But some of us prefer to feed the physical bodies. As soon as things stop feeling good for us, we're out. Right? We are out when things get tough. I've seen so many Christians get to this place in their walk with God where it's, it's uncomfortable now. Right? New Christians, they're coming in, they're feeling the warm fuzzies in worship, they're crying every worship service, but when that stops and there's like a <sighs> lull, <laughs> when that stops feeding us, And God's trying to push us on to get into your Bible now, right? Do some fasting. Get into the more tough spiritual disciplines. That's when we're like, eh, that's uncomfortable. I don't think I'm going to do that. I mean, I'm out. When it's comfortable, when it feels good, we're all in. As soon as it starts getting uncomfortable, maybe maybe the pastor just isn't hearing from God anymore. They probably have sin in their lives. They're not hearing from the Holy Spirit like they used to be. I'll go try another church. And the the process repeats till it stops feeling good. And we're out. Problem is, Jesus doesn't always make it easy. But he will push through your walls if you let him. He will, that's number two, Jesus will push through your walls. Our offenses are these walls that we put up that we have to allow Jesus to push through. Some of us are out when we're offended. I'm offended, I'm done. I'm out. Sometimes the truth is offensive. The Bible is offensive for that reason. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to have to deal with that truth. Our lives don't line up with it, so it needs to change, not me. Because if it's true, then I I would have to change, and I I don't want to change. So I'm going to make it fit my mindset. This is the, the fundamental reason people reject Jesus Christ. He doesn't coordinate with our own self-interests, selfish interests. I can't serve myself all the time and serve Jesus at the same time. 
<clears throat> Jesus is the word. The word is Jesus. And sometimes the word is offensive. But if we don't accept the truth, then we're deluding ourselves. And it's not helpful to anyone. If we allow Jesus to push through those uh, offenses, the things we pick up and just love to be offended by, he can bring us into the season of freedom that you just cannot fathom on the other side of that. If, if we drop our offenses and allow Jesus to expose and draw out and light up all those dark places that we're allowing in our souls, there is so much freedom on the other side of that. There will come a point in your walk with Jesus where he will ask you to give up some of the ideas and attitudes and opinions that you hold in order to follow him. Let me say that again. There will come a point, probably lots of points, in your walk with Jesus where he will ask you to give up some of your ideas, attitudes, and opinions in order to follow him. Some of us, it's a, a piece of our identity he's asking us to give up because it doesn't line up with how he sees us. You can either, at that point, do that, give it up, let him push through your walls and find freedom on the other side, or you will walk away at that point. There is pretty much no in-between. You will move ahead, or you will start going backwards. Let me be clear. Jesus is perfect, you are not. In this particular passage, Jesus offended and he did not apologize for it. Doesn't mean you don't have to apologize when you offend. Okay? This is not the takeaway. <laughs> we, we have to be careful not to be so sacred that we never say sorry. Just because you're spitting scripture at someone and it's offensive does not mean you're necessarily in the right for doing so. Jesus is perfect. You are not. Okay? Doesn't mean you never have to say sorry. <laughs> Just to be clear, we don't, we don't use the scripture to beat people up. That's not. We present the truth. If that's offensive, that's fine. But we don't, we don't beat people up with it. From a leadership perspective, we can challenge people to dig deeper. From, from a disciple perspective, when the word or Jesus' words offend you, examine that. Let him push through that. Don't be out when you get offended. Now, we are to get so in tune with the words of Jesus that when, when we hear him speaking, we change immediately. Uh, people get very confused, like, how do I hear from God better? How do, how do I know it's him speaking? You respond, that's how. When he speaks, respond. And soon, even his whispers, you'll be able to pick out. He won't have to shout it anymore or reprimand us anymore. He'll whisper and we'll be able to change. Now that's the goal. Number three, Jesus asks for total commitment. Total commitment. The crowd is so different from the 12. Their attitude is so Different. We can see this difference between them and the 12 who saved. The crowd liked Jesus. The 12 became like Jesus. Did you catch the difference there? The, the, the crowd liked him. They enjoyed him. But the 12 actually became like him. The crowd got offended and deserted him. The 12 got offended. They, they didn't understand either. But stuck around until they understood 
A disciple is a learner, a mentee, and an apprentice. These roles require commitment, not just a vague fondness for. You know, in a marriage counseling or like premarital classes, we often teach what's the most important thing in a marriage relationship, and people will say all kinds of things, honestly. Um, the ability to fight well or um, trust, uh, honesty, all kinds of things. No, the most important thing in a marriage is commitment. Because if you're committed, you're going to figure out that fight. If you're committed, you're going to stick with it even when things get tough. Right? If you're committed, it's going to force you to be honest at some point. Let your walls down. Be intimate, right? Commitment's the most important. If you don't have commitment, you're not going to stick it around long enough to be honest. You're not going to stick around long enough to be loyal or a good friend to your spouse, right? You're committed. You'll figure it out. I asked my grandmother. It was their 50th anniversary this year, I think. And I said, how? Right? 50 years is a long time. Marriage is hard. How did you do it? And she said, well, there was no other option. (laughs) You figure it out when there's no other option. When you committed to this for life, you figure it out. Commitment is what kept these disciples in. Commitment kept them saying, you know what? I I don't understand. I'm a little offended by these statements, but I'm going to stick around long enough to figure out what he means because he is God. To whom else would we go? There is no one else to go to, Jesus. I'm in. I'm all in. Always, even when I'm offended, even when things don't make sense, even when I can't possibly understand these truths you're throwing at me, it doesn't make sense, but I'm in. So we'll figure it out. I trust you. Now, a lot of us sitting in churches, we are crowd, not disciples. We like Jesus. We're not becoming like him. Becoming like him means learning the virtues of Jesus, his character traits. It means learning the values of Jesus, which are his priorities, the things he places priority on. It means learning the vantage points of him, the way that he sees things. His virtues, his values, his vantage points will change everything when you can understand them. It means you're not just taking his words at face value anymore. You're understanding him. There's a difference. Christian means, to be a Christian means Christ-like, not liking Christ. Christ-like is what we're meant to become. That almost means constant change, constant. Jesus is always saying some crazy, hard-to-believe thing. He's always challenging us. We have to constantly change to that. But I love how Jesus doesn't allow the 12 to focus on those who left. We're going to finish today with this. He immediately turns his attention to the ones who stayed. You don't see Jesus saying, oh, I'm sorry to see you guys go. Come back, please. He immediately turns his attention to the 12 who stayed. He looks at them and he says, will you walk away too? Will you walk away too? We often sit through sermons like this and we think of all the people in our lives who have walked away and that they need to hear this. I need to send them this message. They need to, they need to hear this. 
Jesus isn't asking them today. You came into this church today to hear this message. He's asking you. Will you walk away too? Or are you in? He's trying to to push those of us who are in out of the starving spirit, that me church spirit, coming into church and being like, what's feeding me? What's giving to me? How am I growing and changing? How, How is the pastor serving me? Jesus wants us to move on from that. That starving spirit always wants more, is never satisfied, never content, tends to only want the power for the power. But let me just list a couple of things Jesus did not do for a starving spirit. Jesus did not keep feeding them baby food. He, He did not say, keep following me. I'll feed you again eventually. Come on, guys. He didn't say, okay, here's breakfast, right? He he is trying to move them from that. He did not feed them baby food. Right there is the line. Right there is the boundary. You're not getting food again. I'm trying to give you something else, guys, right? If you're only receiving from God in worship services, you need to go deeper. If you're only receiving from God in the context of someone else's words, meaning through through preaching, someone else's regurgitated (laughs) bread, Go deeper. If you're only receiving from God from the verse of the day when it pops up on your phone, go deeper. Stop being okay with just baby food all the time. It's Father's Day. Get a steak. Go to the Word. Get something that will sustain you. Number two, things Jesus did not do for a starving spirit. He did not stress himself out trying to keep him happy. Jesus is not a people pleaser. I might be, but he is not. Right? He's, he is a father pleaser. He was in it only to please his father. Right? To do the mission, the will of his father, not his own and not theirs, certainly. He didn't come to be their king for that time and place. He came to be all of our king for all of us for eternity. He did not stress himself out trying to make them happy. Number three, he did not let them stay in that mindset. He didn't say, okay, you guys believe what you want to believe. Just keep following. (laughs) He corrected it right then and there. He did not let them stay in that mindset. Number four, he did not run after them and beg them to come back. When people aren't ready to hear the truth, it gets worse when you try to tell them the truth, doesn't it? They'll hate you for it, in fact. Let them be ready. Don't run after them and beg them to come back. Pray for them. Trust that God will bring them back when the time is right. Don't stop praying for them. I'm not saying that, but Jesus did not run after them and beg them to come back. And number five, he did not blame himself. Oh, if I had just been a better leader. If I had just been a better Christian. If I had just fed them food, maybe... Maybe they would have gotten it eventually. (laughs) He didn't blame himself. He gave it over to his father. The father will bring them to me. It's up to him. Isn't that good? Things Jesus did not do for a starving spirit. So today my question for you is, are you in or are you out? Are you going to quit when things get tough? When Jesus is not feeding you baby food all of the time? 12 times. How many times do babies eat baby food, Lindsay? 
So many times a day. So many times a day. Jesus, he wants to move you past that so you can feed yourself and go feed others. You're not crying for every meal, right? Asking somebody else to feed you. You can go to the word and get the answers that you need for you. Answers that will sustain you. The word is the bread of life. Are you in when things get tough? Are you in when you get offended? Or are you going to walk away? Jesus, by the way, he's not disappointed in you. He knows your faults. Even if you've walked away in the past because something offended you or you're considering it right now, he's not disappointed. He knows. He chose Judas knowing what he would do. He understands humanity. He just wants you to keep getting back up and to keep challenging yourself, to keep moving, to keep growing, to keep saying, I'm in. That every morning you get up and you say, God, it's harder than I expected, but I'm in. I don't understand, but I'm in. I'm committed to this no matter what. The wrong question is, Jesus, how can you serve me? The right question is, Jesus, how can I serve you? By the way, I keep saying I'm almost done, but if there's any parenting lessons on this Father's Day to be pulled here, this is one. God created us to serve, not to be served. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And we're meant to be like him, right? I think sometimes parents get caught up in their kids serving them. Either they they would never say it, but that's the attitude. My kids have to make me look good. It's all about looks and appearances. And, And somewhere along the line, it stops being a real relationship with your kid. And it's more about how they're reflecting back on you. Serve your kids. Serve them serve the next generation. Set them up to win. Our Bible teaches that we are to train our kids up in the way they should go. It doesn't say raise them. It specifically says train them. Train them. You all, all of you Christian parents, you're coaches. You're not just raising kids. You're coaching them training them. You're not just babysitters. Some of us approach parenting like babysitters. Like like if we just have a roof over their heads and food in their bellies and bring them to church once in a while, you've been a good Christian parent. No, a Christian parent serves their child, trains their child. Coaching takes work. Anybody ever coached Little League? Coaching takes work. It takes a plan. It takes teaching plays so that when those kids are out on the field away from you, out in the field of life, they know what they're doing without you whispering in their ear all the time. Right? It takes running drills so that it's muscle memory when things come up and the actual play comes. They know what to do. It takes coaching. Intentionality. It takes work. We need more Christian parent coaches training their children. Don't let YouTube and Roblox parent your kids. I'm not saying they're bad altogether. I'm just saying don't let them be the parent, right? The Lord knows the enemy wants to parent your kids. He wants to do that job for you. Don't let the enemy work harder than you are at raising your kids, training them in the way that they should go. Teach them. Prepare them. Right? Well, we need more good Christian parents and not, not just parenting your own kids, but back in kids ministry, in youth ministry, parenting other kids training them, teaching them what to do when things come up, because this world is tough. 
following Jesus is tough. In our schools and work and daily life, it's tough. We need coaches, trainers. There is this line that we all walk as Christians. It's called the process of sanctification. Meaning that we're not perfect and we will never be perfect, but we should always be striving to live up to perfection, the perfection of Jesus, while also knowing we'll never get there. There's so many like upside down oxymorons in the Christian faith don't seem to make sense, but they, they, they do when lived out. We're always trying to live up to the example that Jesus set. while also knowing we will never get there on our own. Jesus has already paid the price. He's not asking for perfection, but he's asking you to step up today. Challenge yourself today. Say, I'm in. Even when things are tough, let him change you from the inside out. All we have to do is say, I'm in. I'm in. I'm into whatever comes, Lord. To whom else would we go? No one else has the words that give eternal life. No one. I'm in. Whatever words you have for me today, whether they're harsh, whether they're comforting, whether they're encouraging, whether they're providing me bread or not, I'm in. If you're in today, you got to be ready to be challenged to be stretched, to be called up to a higher understanding. Are you in today? That wasn't a rhetorical question. Are you in today? Father, we're in today. We commit ourselves to being in today. Challenge us, grow our faith, move us in the right direction. God, help us have open minds when we approach Jesus ready for whatever he has to say, whether he wants to come in and help us clean up our messes, whether he wants to challenge us to do it ourselves, whether he wants to feed us or encourage us to feed others. God, we're in. Help us raise our level of commitment today. We wouldn't be walking around like spoiled, rotten brats, asking everyone else to feed us all the time, to do everything for us all the time in our faith, but that we would dig in for ourselves get the bread for ourselves so that we can go and feed others. Help us step up. Help us start asking the right questions, hanging on your every word. So whom else would we go? Heads bowed and eyes still closed. Maybe today you've never made that decision before to say I'm in. Today's a first. You can feel it in your heart that you're in. You want to be in. Uh, We oftentimes, we need this moment to actually say it, to indicate it, that we are in, we're not going back. Today's the day. Uh, We often call it salvation or our spiritual birthday, that day that we make the decision. I'm in and I'm not looking back. And from that moment, you are a new creation in Christ. And he wants to change you from the inside out. It's not something that you have to put on all the time. It's, it's hard work to change, I know. But Jesus wants to help you do that. Sometimes he'll challenge you. Sometimes he'll encourage you. Right? He wants to help you through that process. If that's you today, it's a first time maybe, or it's the first time in a long time, and you're sitting here in the room, and you want to say, I'm in. Would you just raise your hand right where you're sitting? I'm in. 
Amen. First time, the first time in a long time, maybe. There's going to be, keep your hand up just until an usher comes around and gives you a little card, just some information to help you with that decision. If you're watching online today and you're saying, I'm in for the first time or it's been a while, text the number on the screen or type I'm in in the comments. We'd love to help you with that decision as well. Anybody else here today? I'm in to following Jesus. Okay. For the rest of you, I just want to give you an opportunity make that commitment again to say I'm in even when it's hard I'm in even when it's challenging I'm in even when I'm offended I'm in even when it doesn't feel like Jesus is feeding me right now I'm in even when I'm hungry in when I'm thirsty I'm in when it doesn't look like I know how to pay my rent this month or whether my marriage is going to make it or whether my kids are going to be okay I'm in no matter what I think a lot of us, as Christians, we think we're standing on the promises of God. We, we think we're claiming the promises. But some of us use those promises to twist God's arm in a very specific way. Yes, God will provide for you, but will it be the exact way that you want it to be? And some of us stand on his promises. We throw these things almost back in his face. And I want this specific way. I want you to provide for me in this way and no other way. I won't hear of it any other way, God. Jump, monkey, jump, right? Do your tricks and provide for me. Instead of saying, God, I know you will provide for me. And whatever way that comes, we'll be okay. There's a difference. Don't use the promises of God to manipulate him into doing what you want. Use them to walk in freedom. Walk in victory, even when you can't feel it knowing that it's coming because God is good. Not because he'll do whatever you want all of the time. Does that make sense? Raise your hand if you're in to that kind of faith. And maybe it's new for you. (laughs) Maybe it's been a while. I'm in. Father, thank you for each and every decision made today. Challenge us. Correct us, guide us when we need it. Encourage us when we need it. God, we're into whatever comes. We're going to stop asking the question, what can you do for me? And we're going to step up into maturity and faith and say, what can I do for you today, God? How can I help others in your name today? In Jesus' name.